Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook. On this special episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with five-time Major League All-Star Luis Gonzalez in front of a live studio audience. The chance of a lifetime for Luis Gonzalez. Floater, center field, the Diamondbacks are world champions. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by a five-time All-Star. He's a 2001 World Series champion. And his number was retired by the Arizona Diamondbacks in 2010. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Luis Gonzalez. Gonzo! Thanks, Boone. Thanks for coming on the program. Yeah. Hey, we're going live. We're at Tempe, Mill Avenue, first live podcast uh, for the Boone Podcast. You're the first guest. It, oh, it, I appreciate it's it. It's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, how many Red Sox fans have bought you drinks over the years? <laughs> I tell you, uh, we went back to play in uh, 2002 Interleague, and... Uh, Craig Council, myself, you know, when you travel on the road, you have a group of guys that we always, when the plane lands, you always go back to go eat dinner that night when you get in. And we went to a restaurant and we walked in a nice establishment, walked in there, we all started ordering. And then uh, the waiter came over and said, hey, uh, somebody wants to take care of your meal and your drinks. And we were like, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? And it was actually the owner of the of the establishment wanted to take care of us and it was so cool and then when we played the Red Sox that day for the three days that we were there we've got a louder round of applause than we uh, than the actual Red Sox did when they introduced our starting lineup that day so it was pretty cool on the other hand when we went to the Yankees a part of town yeah they didn't treat us so well over there we went into a restaurant and they uh, tried to give us a table by the restrooms and they made us wait, and there was no, no, there was open tables everywhere, so we weren't really treated that well over there. And that's cool. That's be, that's before the 2004 when they finally finally won it. So Boston, it's like this is all we got. We got to stop the the evil machine in New York, uh, and we'll get to that as this as this show goes on. But let's get to your childhood. Born, raised Tampa, Florida. Uh, give me a little. What was little Gonzo like? Well, I mean, uh, my family was from Cuba, so I grew up basically speaking Spanish almost, well, before I spoke English. And my mom became a school teacher, went to college at University of South Florida, and uh, I'm the oldest of three. I have a younger brother uh, and a sister. And, uh, you know, we, my dad was a, made Cuban bread. He was a baker and my mom was a teacher and my grandparents worked at a cigar factory. So they made cigars. So it was, I grew up in a Hispanic community. So for me, it was all about playing in the street, stick ball, cork ball. Uh, my mom never let me play football because I grew up in a Hispanic family and I wasn't big enough. So, and I hated it at the time, but then as years went on, I was more thankful for it as time went on. But it was a tight-knit community, our neighborhood, everybody. And what's so unique about those times were that's when you saw kids playing out in the street all day long and you never left your block. It was like, it was like your territory. If you left your block, it was you were competing against somebody in either the other neighborhood or the other block, whether it was a 
basketball game or a football game or something like that. It was kind of your territory that you kind of owned for a while. It was, it was super fun and, and great to be there. And I love going back home and seeing all those guys because my childhood dream growing up in a Hispanic community was to be one of the next big league ball players that came out of Tampa. And back then, you know, those guys would all be sitting out in the park playing dominoes and uh, reading the, the newspaper. And, you know, they they didn't care about who won and lost a game. It was always about their guys in their neighborhood. And I wanted to be one of those guys. And I would always tell my mom and dad when we went to get Cuban coffee and cafe con leche and, and the Cuban bread. Um, I always, when I walked in there, I would always tell my parents, I'm going to be one of those guys that they're going to be talking about one day. And it was so cool once I got to the big leagues to walk in there and for those guys to still telling the same lies at the table, you know, that they were 20 something years ago, but they were all still sitting there talking about their big league guys. That's very cool. And, and it is a hotbed in Tampa. I mean, we've had a, we've had a few on the show, you know, Tino Martinez, one of your buddies, I think uh, high school team. Yeah, we were teammates. Uh, we had Tino at Sheffield and obviously Lou Pinella, who, who I played for my favorite one of my favorite men in life. Yeah. I mean, a beauty threw threw away that they threw away the mold uh, with Lou Larusa, Freddie McGriff. Uh, the list goes on and on. And interesting. How about Colombia, the Spanish restaurant? Ebor oh, the Colombia. Yeah, that was a great restaurant. Over my burn steakhouse. Yep. yep. It's uh, it's kind of a staple where, you know, when people come into Tampa. I mean, now. You know, with Tom Brady over there now, the Buccaneers are big. And then you got uh, the Amelie Center where the Tampa Bay Lightning, they've, they've really developed in a big community. The only, the only uh, you know, the Tampa Bay Rays have been doing well with the thing, but they're across the bridge. So it's kind of, they're trying to move it over to the Tampa Bay area and try to get them over there. But they've got a great community, great fans. And of course, the Yankees are there for spring training. And when I was younger, it was called Redsland, which was the Cincinnati Reds were there. So that was my favorite team growing up, the Big Red Machine, 75, 76 uh, Reds. And now the Yankees are there, and they've kind of taken over. I mean, there's you can't go anywhere in Tampa without seeing somebody either wearing a Tampa Bay Rays hat or a Yankees hat. And, I mean, you know, your brother's the manager of the Yankees, so that would be... Uh, you don't wear the Yankees Louis, hat. Louis, Louis, Louis. All right, our time's a little different, but when Luis and I were playing together... Uh, was I ever Aaron Boone's brother? I mean, are you serious? Now, it actually, you know, the first time is when he hit the homer. You know, right. but I was still playing. Oh, no, I'll, I'll let him be. You were the big one before. Right, right. I'll be, you know, I'll be his brother for, okay, you just hit a big homer. I'll be, I'll be your brother for a night. But now it's like, hey, you're Aaron Boone's brother. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Yeah. But, you know, I, we get older. We get a little more humble. I Absolutely. can accept it. I'm proud of what Aaron's done uh, over in Yankee territory. Hopefully they can keep it up. Um, well, I always tell people, if they got to turn your baseball card around and squint their eyes or get a magnifying glass, that means you played for a long time. So you did a pretty good job of that. So we're getting a little bit older. Um, <laughs> you know, one more thing I, I want to touch on. Uh, you talk about our childhood and, and that group and playing those games. You don't see that today. I mean, I remember, you know, and I got some buddies that, that we play street hockey. And what do you do? As soon as the car comes, you got to move the net. Right. And then you put it back. We play or touch football on the street. Everything was till mom blows the whistle. It's dark and you got to right. come home. And, and uh, you know, raising kids as you as you have, as I have, uh, you try to instill that in them, but it's just a different world. It and, is. And, and there's some cool things yeah. about 2022 that I wish as a kid, and, and probably you do too, like, wow, this would be cool. But 
I think the basic, I, I'd love to see us get back to a little bit of that. Yeah, and no, you know, where I grew up in my neighborhood, <clears throat> wrestling was huge. So on Tuesday nights, the wrestlers would drive down our street because it was uh, Dusty Rose, uh, Jack and Jerry Briscoe, all those guys. Gordon Soley was the announcer, the ring announcer. Before now, it's all blown up with WWE and everything. But those guys would put their mask on and drive down our street because we had about... 10, 15 kids out there on Tuesday nights, we knew, and then we would get in the alley, and there was an opening at the arena, it was the armory, and there was an opening in the arena, and the ring was right there, because it would, you know, it was so hot in Florida, the cool breeze would go through there, and there would be about 15, 20 kids that, you know, we wouldn't tell our parents where we were going, and we'd all be standing in the alley watching the wrestling matches, so that, I grew up watching wrestling my whole life out there. It was pretty cool, especially seeing all the wrestlers coming down your street. They'd toot the horn, and we'd wave at them, and it was kind of a big deal back then. Very cool. You get to high school, you go to uh, Thomas Jefferson, Jefferson yeah, High, Jefferson high which school. is you know, also famous. A lot, of, a lot of big leaguers went through that neck of the woods. When you're getting down to deciding what you're going to do, I believe you went undrafted out of high school. Is I that did. correct? Yeah. You end up you end up settling on the University of South Alabama. Why that choice? What was what was those 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 junior senior years like for you in, in Tampa? Well, for me it was different because Tino was the guy everybody Tino Martinez was the guy everybody was coming to see. So I weighed probably about 165, 170 pounds. Second I played second base in high school and Tino was our first baseman. So all the scouts were always coming to see him play. And I was a skinny, scrawny kid, but I, but I knew I could hit. And I always hit in front of Tino. I was like kind of the setup man, and then he was the guy that tried to drive me in. So um, as time went on, I figured, you know, there's got to be a school out there that kind of would recruit me. So every school that I went to, I visited University of Oklahoma. They were going to redshirt me. Um, I, I talked to, you know, guys at Miami because I was a Florida kid. I wanted to go to school there. They were going to redshirt me. University of South Florida, they were going to redshirt me. So then there was a school in Mobile, Alabama called University of South Alabama. And I went on a recruit trip there, and I'm sitting in the stands, and I'm a people person. So this old couple, and I still remember like it was yesterday, they came over and talked to me and said, hey what are you doing here? You're sitting by yourself in the stands. I said, I'm a recruit. I'm here to, you know, see the game for the weekend. And they said, oh, we'd love to have you come over for dinner. And I'm like, oh my gosh, these people don't even know me. And they're inviting me over for dinner. And I went home. I felt really comfortable there. And I liked the way they played the game of baseball. You know, there was no showboating or anything like that. The, the head coach, uh, Eddie Stanky was the coach back then. And then it was Steve Kittrell who took over and he was a military guy. So it was, there was more discipline and stuff like that. And kind of if you grow up in a, a Hispanic household, it's, it's all about discipline. And when your mom is going to cut you loose and you're going to leave the house, they want you to go somewhere where you know you're going to get taken care of. So um, I talked to the head coach there and I said, look, I'm not asking you to give me a job, a starting job, but I, I want you to give me an opportunity to try to make the team and not redshirt me right out of the gates. Because I knew if I had an opportunity, I was going to be able to play. And I went in for fall, and uh, they asked me, it was all juniors and seniors, I was probably one of the youngest guys on the team, and uh, they said, can you play first base? And I go, yeah, I played first base all the time, which I didn't, because Tino played first base. You played second, I, I never played, knew that. Yeah, so um, I ended up playing first, and made the, you know, the team, and um, started for three years, never missed a game, was an All-American over there, and 
it was great. I mean, as, as time went on, I developed as, you know, the, the setup guy for the guys in the lineup. And then as my sophomore year came, then I moved down to the number three guy in the lineup. And then sometimes I hit third and fourth my last, my junior year. And then I ended up getting drafted. You know, back then they would send the telegram. It's not like now everything's on television and things like that. So I got a telegram and a phone call saying you got drafted by the Houston Astros in the fourth round in 1998. And uh, I was scared and I was thrilled at the same time because I was going to Auburn, New York, and I didn't know where the heck that was. But uh, it was it was a lot of fun to be there. I'm going to tell you a little story. You probably won't believe that about your buddy over here, Boone. But coming out of high school, I got drafted like 29th round. And my attitudes were, are you kidding me? Do they know that I'm the best player in the world <laughs> and they're past me? But what do you mean I'm too small? Um, and that's how I thought back then. You know, I went to the University of Southern California, loved my three years there. But now, you know, living this life and, and the life that we were so fortunate to live and moving on and watching my kids grow up, I, I have a new appreciation for that. It was such the best thing for me. I think at 18 years old to throw me into minor league baseball, I see a lot of kids that you work with the Diamondbacks now. I've done a little work with the A's uh, on the field with these guys. And tell me what your thoughts are, but there's a, it, there's a special kid that when he's 18 years old is ready to go pro ball, right. and there's not too many of them. And right. I'm not just talking about the physical. I'm talking about the mental being ready. Because you go down there, there's guys that have been pitching for five years, yeah. throwing 97. You're coming from this high school going. So, so I'm always, you know, I talk to parents, and I'm sure you talk to parents. What should little Johnny do? I'm like, well, if little Johnny's getting offered a couple million dollars, it's tough for me to tell you no, right. but I'm telling you, the college experience was so good for me. You talk about being away from home. Uh, man, I was away from home, but mom was 45 minutes down the road. So she could come up and do my laundry a little bit and, and give me a couple meals and put them in the freezer for me. So I kind of got eased into it. By the time I was 21 years old, I was a house on fire. I was ready to go. Right. And, but I needed that little bit of a buffer. I could still use aluminum. Gave me three more years to get a little stronger, and then I was ready to go. It was great for me. What do you think about the current current day and how how uh, yeah I, you know, signing versus not signing? I agree with you. I wasn't ready. Uh, I have a son who was drafted 50, 57th or fifty eighth overall in the draft, and he got big the money. He got the big money to yeah. to go sign. I mean, he had committed to college, but you know, he's a big kid. He grew up in a locker room. He felt like he was ready to go and. You know, he's had his ups and downs and his struggles in minor league, and I'm thankful that he did it now because the years that he would have been in college was the COVID years. So that took a lot of, you know, time away from a lot of those players that are, you know, in college now. And even in baseball, everybody missed a year in the minors especially. But, you know, I see he goes through the ups and downs of going through it. And, you know, us as dads that have, you know, been through the grind and know, I mean, you want to always try to help your son out as much as you can, but you got to have... They've got to be able to experience that ups and downs also. And for me, that's been the hardest part. I mean, when I, you know, I watch his games now and I feel like I'm grinding through the at-bats and when he's playing, I'm grinding through it too. And my wife says, you're going to have a heart attack watching your kid play all the time. You just got to relax and let it be and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And, and it's cool. Earlier, we were, we were off mic. But we were, you were watching your kid play, and I was yeah, watching mine and, and play. we're both grinding. Yeah. You know, and we're like, come on. Come on. <laughs> you know he's going to throw you a breaker ball. I How know. are you not sitting on it? But, you know, we both know this game is so it hard. Is. And as ex-players, and I think you just alluded to it, 
we got nervous. We had butterflies. There were big pressure pack situations, but that, that was okay. When it's our kids, I don't know about you. My kid comes up at the bases loading a 2-2 game or 2-1 game. All we need is a sack fly. Yeah. We just need a grounder to short. Roll over and then the punch out. And it's like, oh, it kicks you in the gut. <laughs> yeah. It's harder than when we were playing. Yeah, it's hard because, you, you know, you, you love your kids to death and you want to see them succeed. And we've been through those failures. So you want to try to talk them through it. Um, my wife always tells me it's your delivery, how you talk to your kids. So because I'm always, you know, oh. You know, because when we played, we were intense players. I like to have fun off the field, but when you were in there, I was trying to, I was trying to win. We wanted to win, and I think now that the game's changed a little bit now because a lot more players are induced into social media, and it's more about their brand and things like that. So that's the part of the game that I miss is the self-policing in the clubhouse and on the field and things like that. There's so many big name players out there now, and they're making so much money that. You know, they've kind of created their own brand, and it doesn't really matter about the wins and losses for a lot of those guys. It's more about, you know, what they can do with their name and, and uh, how they go out there. And I, I think when you, when you talk about the game at that level, when we came up, it was a different time. When we were, I don't know about you, but when I was a rookie, I was told to sit in the front of the bus, shut up, you speak when you're spoken to. I had Jay Buhner and, and Chris Bazio kind of policing me. Yeah. Now, they were great. Uh, for me but they kept me in check it's it's almost like you got to earn your stripes i see the kids today it's a different atmosphere and i've been going back and forth with this if you have a star young player come to the big leagues as a rookie 21 years old but he's your guy a tatis in san diego is it better to let him do whatever he wants? Is he going to play better, or is it better the way we had it, where we kind of had to earn our yeah. stripes and, and earn that respect of the elders? I, I, I think you have to kind of reel them in a little bit and have them kind of earn their stripes, but at the same time, let them know that uh, you know they're just as important. Like for me, I always try to let make that 25th guy on the roster feel just as important as our number one guy was and, and now these kids are you know there's so much social media and television that they know everything that's going on for us I mean when I got called up I signed in 88 in 1990 I got called up to the Houston Astros and I walked into the Astrodome that's and a the big only, yard by the way and the only time I had ever seen the Astrodome was watching the Bad News Bears in breaking training yeah and I was like oh my god I'm walking into the movie and I'm standing in the dugout where Bob Watson, I remember him chanting, let them play, and everybody's chanting. And I'm sitting in that dugout now. I'm going, man, this is where they shot the scene. And then I forgot that I'm in the big leagues. And I was, like, taken in the moment going, that's one of my favorite movies. And now I'm sitting out here in the Astrodome, uh, you know, trying to, to be a big league ball player. It's Bob Watson and Cesar Cedeno. <laughs> I know. I remember that. All right. 88, you get drafted. Fourth round pick uh, by the Houston Astros. You weren't in the minor leagues long. 1990, you talked about getting called up. That was your cup of coffee. We all usually have a cup of coffee. Um, I mentioned Bazio. I mentioned Jay Buhner. Who's the guy that took you under their wing? For me, it was, uh, well, there was a couple guys. Uh, Mike Scott was on the team. Danny Darwin, there was a couple pitchers. Craig Biggio was coming up. Uh, he was already establishing himself. We had just made the trade for Jeff Bagwell. Uh, Rafael Ramirez was a guy, and Ken Obergfell were the two position guys that really 
took me under their wing and took care of me. I mean, th that was how they used to do it with the young kids. They would take the rookie to dinner. They'd take him and buy him suits and things like that. And then you'd pass that tradition on to the yo other younger guys when they were coming up. I did the same thing like when I played with Houston and then here. And then when I got to the Dodgers, I played for the Dodgers for a year. And it was uh, Russell Ma Martin and uh, Andre Ethier were two young guys that I kind of took under my wing took them out I mean bought them suits and every, and that was towards the end of my career but I still wanted to kind of teach them hey this is what you're supposed to do and take care of the clubhouse guys and the the attendance and things like that and you know don't be bigger than the game you know treat everybody the same way and that's something that I still try to do now I mean I, I never even when I was at the top of my game I never tried to put myself uh, bigger or above anybody else we're all the same you know I put on a big league uniform and play in front of hundreds and thousands of people and do great things and hopefully try to entertain everybody. But when I went home, I still had to take the garbage out. I still got to do my household stuff like that. So I tried to keep things in perspective and I never tried to shelter our kids. You know, there's so many guys now that kind of, you know, they, they hide their kids and anything like that. My kids went to public school. I was always in the community. I, I wanted our kids to grow up the way I did. I didn't grow up with a lot of money. And I, you know, my grandmother and my mom and them, they worked their tails off for me to have the, the good things that I did. And I thought it was great. Everything that I had, you know, I, you know, go out and my friends, some of them had new gloves. And here I am with my glove for, you know, eight, nine years that I was still putting together and lacing up. But I appreciated everything that I had. And that's the same thing, the way we tried to bring our kids up. And granted, you know, our, their lifestyle was a little bit different, but we still, I still took them to do charity work here in the community and all kinds of things. So we wanted them like Thanksgiving, we were serving meals to the homeless and we were doing all kinds of different things because you wanted them to appreciate the things that we had and realize, you know, that there's a lot of people out there struggling. And if you can help any way in the community, that's, that's the way you want to bring your kids up. No, that's that's so cool, and it, it's almost like let's make it as normal as we possibly yeah. can for uh, for the kids. And you know, I had a little bit of a it cracks me up because I'll be asked all the time. You know, growing up, what'd you learn from your dad? You learn how to hit. Bob Boone didn't teach me one thing on the baseball field, <laughs> but I'll tell you what, he taught me how to be a pro and how to behave. And, right. and I, we're oil and water. We're completely different personalities, but. But when I got to the big league, that's the one advantage I had, maybe, as a rookie, was I'd been in that clubhouse and I knew how to behave like a pro. Yeah. You know, and my dad was respected, and I said, if he's doing it that way, I'll tell you what, a lot of people talk about the respect he got. Maybe I should behave like that that way in the in the clubhouse. And I think if I had anything, it was that as, a, as an unbelievable example for yeah, me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and I always tell, like, I, I, you know, I'm still working for the Diamondbacks, so when I go to the minor leagues, I always tell the players, look, you're gonna, if you get the opportunity to play in the big leagues, it's the greatest job in the world. You're doing something that millions of people want to do, but at the same time, the impact that you make on the community and on the people, there's going to be other great players. When I left here, Goldschmidt came through here and a lot of other great big-name guys. The impact that you make is what you do outside of the field. You know, because I always say there's going to be people that are going to come through. They're going to break your records. Uh, hopefully the team here will end up winning another World Series. We, you know, you want to you were part of the first, but you hope that the team could get better and continue a tradition like that. But the impact that you make on people like when I go out in the street, 
I get a bigger thrill of somebody saying, oh, man, you know, or somebody telling somebody in my family or somebody, man, I met your son. He was awesome. What a great guy. To me, that's more important than saying, oh, your son was a hell of a player. He was great. And my mom used to take more pride in people saying how good her kid was than them saying, oh, your kid was a great ball player and stuff like that. Because there's so many players in the game, you got to do something different to get noticed and, and make an impact in the community. And for me, that's what I always try to tell our young kids in the minor league camps. And my son that's playing now, it's the biggest thrill I get. Like my son got moved up a level and uh, the clubhouse guy, actually i've never met the guy he reached out and sent me a note saying whatever you did with your kid you taught him the right way and to me that is the ultimate compliment that you can get from anybody when you're when your kids are doing something the right way and somebody says your kids are doing the right thing out there and then you know my wife and i know that we're doing the right things with them because that's all you got I mean, you're at home, and, and believe me. How's that guy got a Griffey Jr. jersey and not a Boone jersey right there? What's Look at that guy on? over there. I saw, a, I saw a guy earlier had a... How does he not have a Boone jersey? Had a Boonies jersey, but that. it was, it was playing on the Goonies. Oh, yeah, he walked man. By me I and saw he looked at me. I'm like, is that right? Boonies? Or you don't even know that this is Boonies <laughs> show coming up. Um, all right, we get to the, we get to the, uh, we get to the Astrodome. Your first skipper, Art Howe. Art Howe. How was he as a first skipper? You know what? He was awesome. Uh, I, I, I was disappointed when the movie came out uh, with the Oakland A's. Uh, Moneyball. Moneyball. Yeah, because Art wasn't happy. I played a little golf with Art. They portrayed him as a bad person, and this guy is the salt of the earth. He was the nicest. I mean, he wanted to win. He competed. But, I mean, he had a young team when I was there with the Astros. And, man, when, when, they, when that movie came out, I was like, this is not the same Art Howe that I knew, so it was kind of disappointing to see that. I'm, I'm glad that you said he was not happy because I wasn't happy either knowing him in true life and the real person that he really is. 1990, uh, you get your feet wet. 91, you play full season in the big league. Right. Pretty good for a first season. He hit 254, he drove in 69, hit 13 jacks. 92, similar year. 93, you hit 300 for the first time. Um, at this, at this juncture, you hit 15 home runs. There's a lot to come in the future. And, and also, uh, to, those, to those of you out there listening to the Boom Podcast, we had, we had quite a bit of time to catch up. Uh, me and Gonzo, we haven't seen each other for a while. But, but uh, I was telling him, I said, you know, when I was doing the, the prep work for you, I said, we kind of had a lot of similarities early in our career. Yeah. And, and we were talking about, man, if I would have known what I knew then. But they're, but they're similar paths. Um, 93, you hit 300. Was that something for you? Like, I'm here. Yeah, it was uh, actually, it took me to the last game of the season. I was sitting right at like 299. I needed to go one for two or two for four. And my first at bat, uh, Joe Oliver was catching behind the plate for the Reds. And I still remember, he's like, hey, good luck. And uh, I think I grounded out the first time. And then the next time up, I was. Uh, I got a good pitch to hit. I hit a base hit up the middle, and then I ended up stealing a bag. I think I got 20 bags that year, too, all in the last day. Hit 300, got 20 bags, and then they pinch ran for me, and I came out of the game early. I don't think they wanted me to mess that up and stay right at 300. Yeah, that was a big deal back then to hit 300. That's a big deal. And I'll tell you what, people talk about it all the time, and they try to, I don't want to say cheapen the 300 average, 
But the guys that hit 300 now, those are the real hitters. Oh, absolutely. As much as you want to say, it's not what we look at. We look at war. We look at OPS. We look at this. Show me a 300 hitter. I'll guarantee he's hitting third. Or, or, sorry, nowadays that would be hitting second. Or maybe leading off. But your best player is still usually the guy that's got a three in front of his average. Yeah, and I'm not against analytics. I think some of it is good, but I always tell people the biggest hit in my career was probably left my bat at 70 miles an hour, if that. The blooper over Jeter's head. Maybe a little less. Probably less. So when a guy hits a ball 110 or 107 and it's a line out, that, that doesn't do anything for me. Give me a guy who's getting on base, gets a, a cheap hit or whatever. He's on base. He's hitting 300. Those are the guys I want on my team. I don't care if you hit the ball hard or not as long as you're getting base hits and you're producing and you're doing stuff for the ball club. I mean, that sometimes that gets overrated with the hard hits and all that. Hard hits doesn't guarantee you a hit, right? Last time I checked. Right. I, I think what the analytics are good for nowadays is at the younger level before you make it the right. developmental stage it's easy for a scout to say well if i if i get his his exit velo over 500 times well you could probably put it into a computer and say the guys that hit it this hard this consistently usually become good players right once you're in the big leagues and you are a big leaguer who cares how hard yeah you i think that's a good point for me the, the other stat is probability his probability is he's going to hit 310. What if I'm he's like, really unlucky? I said, well, he's, <laughs> his probability is not reality. So he's hitting 207, and you're saying his probability is 310. How are we off by 103 points here? So You know what's pissing me off? Recently, they get this thing now where a guy hits a ball off the top of the wall, and they'll go, well, in 27 other ballparks. I'm going, wait a minute. <laughs> What's the degrees? Where's the wind blowing? Because you know as well as yeah, I do, different we, go, we go to certain ballparks. It depends. Yeah. Some days it's flying out to right center. Sometimes it's not. So that's a false. Yeah, thing. Wrigley oh, Field is a great day, example right. of that. Left center at Yankee Stadium sometimes plays really big. When it's hot, I've hit pop-ups that go out of there. Right. So don't tell me it would have gone out today in 27. That's good for TV, though. Yeah. You know, fans like that kind of stuff. Anyway, moving on. 95 uh, mid-season, you traded to the Cubs. Yep. And I've always wondered, never played for the Cubs, actually love going to Wrigley. Uh, just happened to hit well there. But until they won it in 2016, I was always a proponent of Chicago Cubs can't win. There's no way they can win. Why? Because you can't play that many day games at the big league level and keep up a 162-game schedule. Well, they proved me wrong now. Right. We have the lights at Wrigley. Now they're playing more night games. What do you think about Wrigley? How, is that, how did that change how you prepare? Because we're creatures of habit. Right. We, usually we play five night games a week. we got a couple day games mixed in. We know when they're coming. But you go to a team now and you look at the schedule and it goes, day game, day game. That, that kind of screws up our yeah. clock. Yeah, your routine, yeah. If, for me, it was uh, a lot of uh, waking up in the middle of the night kind of things, like three, four times. I always had that dream that I was going to wake up and we're being the fourth inning and Harry Carey saying he just he hasn't shown up yet to the ballpark. So, yeah, it was one of those things where, you know, every day when I got on the road, that's when you got your better sleep because at home and when you play at Chicago uh, or any one of those big, you know, great ballparks that everyone in your family wants to go to, all your friends want to go to and uh, you're, you're, you feel like you're the entertainer. 
you constantly have to leave tickets and you know after the game everybody wants to go to dinner and do all every you know all the other stuff so you kind of get out of your routine right and I mean the, the good thing was you know you play day games and when you're done you get to eat a normal dinner but the downside to it was and I love my family to death but everybody all your family and friends all wanted to go to Wrigley Field because that's the place to be What's Wrigley Field? Yeah, Wrigley Field, Fenway Park. Those were like the two big parks that everybody wanted to go to. Another thing, you wake up in the morning, you go outside and go, I, I want to know which way the wind's blowing. Oh, yeah, no doubt. That's huge. Yeah, you. When, when I was driving to the park, that's the first thing I looked at was the flag out at Wrigley to see if it was blowing in or if it was blowing out. If it was blowing out, you were hoping you were going to have a good day. Just get in the air. That's it. And then if it's blowing in, you better hit it twice. You got to hit line drives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 97. You sign a one-year deal, you go back to Houston. You must have liked the Astrodome because it was such a small park. I'll tell you, I, I got it. Remember the Astrodome? Remember the visiting side? You could get, if you, if you get to the yard early, you can go through the stands. Right. And you can get to the clubhouse. Quicker. I remember this. We're playing the Astros. I think it was, it was later. I think you were gone. But uh, Chris Sabo was a pinch hitter for the Reds. He, you know, he played once or twice a week. Bottom of the ninth, or no, top of the ninth, obviously. Uh, he goes up to pinch it, hits a bomb. Fair. Eric Gregg calls it foul. Spuds, you know, he's like, yeah, that was a fair ball, that was a fair ball. Next pitch, he ends up popping it straight up. <laughs> and this is what I always, other than the cat in the Astrodome, yeah. this is what I remember. Chris Sabo went from home plate, past the on-deck circle, into the crowd, through the crowd in his uni. By the time we made the third out, which was the next guy, we all walked up that windy road. Right. His, all his clothes were there, and he was gone. And, and that, when I think of the Astrodome, I think of that black cat on the way up. Right. And I think of Chris Sabo walking through the stands, one of the classic things. But the Astrodome... And for the people that don't know, the cat was there. Tell, tell them that cat story. The cat is kind of the... Uh, the Astrodome was very old, so there was a lot of rats that were kind of down under the bleachers and stuff like that. So he was he was kind of the uh, the bodyguard down there. Yeah, he was the pet. He was the pet down there. The only, only certain things we know that everybody doesn't know. Anyway, you turn back to Houston. Obviously, you like playing there. We mentioned some of your teammates. Baggy, one of my all-time favorite players to watch. I don't think he gets enough credit. He's right. one of the best players to ever play this game. One of the best players I ever played against. Maybe not statistically, but as far as running the bases, stealing a bag. Oh, no doubt. One of the best I've ever played against. So, so one of the things a lot of people don't know were in spring training before that time, Bagwell had just come over in a trade. Ken Caminetti and myself, we were all three third basemen. I thought you were second baseman. Well, when I got drafted, they made me a third oh, baseman. No. So <laughs> I went to the minors as a third baseman. Okay. So when Art Howe was our manager in spring training, we were all hitting like 400 in spring. So they called me and Baggy in, and they said, look, you're the tall, skinny guy. We're going to make you an outfielder. And Baggy, he was short and squatty. He said, we're going to make you first baseman. And Caminetti was the best defensive third baseman on our club at the time and one of the top three or four in the league. So Caminetti stayed at third. They moved me to left field and put Bagwell at first base. And Biggio went from Biggio. behind the dish to a second baseman, which is amazing to me. Yeah. I've never seen a catcher. Well, they put him in center, too, for a little bit, and then he ended up coming to second. 
it was amazing to me because I said, you can't just catch, especially back before they changed the rule, where guys are coming to get you back. Right, right. I said, I haven't seen too many catchers go to second base and make that pivot yeah. in a big situation. And, wants and he wasn't a big dude. You no. Know? He wasn't like... You know, being a catcher, that's the same thing we have here with the Astro or with the Diamondbacks with uh, Dalton Varsho. He's kind of a catcher, plays center field. He could play right field and stuff like that, but he can hit. First year you went to the playoffs in 97. You got beat by the Braves, but you you get a little bit of a taste of it. Yeah. We had a young team. The Braves, of course, they had Smoltz, Glavin, Avery, those guys. They were dominant. They had a good team. We were young, and we just got overmatched over there. Those guys just, you knew that they were the, you know, the Atlanta Braves were in town, and they were they were peaking at the time. Were you like, were you like me? Did you, when you're playing against the Braves, let's say you got a, you got a series against them two weeks out. You're looking, hoping Back there, you can we got the three U- in the series. We, we got the USA Today, right? And right. I'm out there going 14 days out, like Who one eye face? open, and it's, it was every time. Yeah. It was Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin. Yeah. I'm like, and I love this guy, and he's a great pitcher in his own right, but give me frickin' Merker one time. <laughs> yeah. But I'd never get him. It was yeah. Smoltz, Maddox, Glavin, and, and I couldn't get around it. The one year I got to play with him in 99, we'd be going over the hitters. And Doggy, Doggy, by the way, is, is Greg Maddox. He was my locker mate for, the, for that one year I played with the Braves. And, and I kind of was appreciative that I didn't have to face him. But every meeting, he'd have a piece of paper. He's a big data guy. He'd, he'd look at it, and it would be my stats against him. And he's like, aren't you glad you're on my team? And I'm like, I, <laughs> I, actually, I really am. I, I was act- there for a year. I, I didn't actually, do well off him. I actually hit him. I had 11 career homers off of him. Come on. I swear. Well, now I you're swear. rubbing it in. No. I was a, I was I a could, joke. I got him late in my I career. Hit Jamie, yeah. I couldn't hit Jamie Moyer, who was on your team. Yeah. So, yeah, but... Yeah, there. You know, and in the game, there's certain guys that you really feel good when you're, you know, you know who you got good numbers against when you're getting there, and then there's other guys where you're like, you know, you're gonna have to grind out that day when you see them in the rotation, you know, two three days out, and you go, okay, I need to try to figure something out against this guy. Whether you got to change your approach or your stance or something like that to get them. That off season, you end up signing a one year deal with the Tigers. What brought you to Detroit? <clears throat> well, they were an American League team. I'd never played in the American League. And the, the recruitment-wise, they called me in and said, look, we're going to play the first game ever at Tampa against the Rays. It was their inaugural year. And they said, you have a chance to, uh, to play in the ballpark with your home family and crowd there and stuff like that and that sold me i mean i didn't i didn't know much about detroit you know i knew the short porch and right field and tiger stadium and stuff like that but i didn't really know much of the history of the players that they had on the team at the time and uh it sold me to go over there and that first opening day i had a really good i had a good night that night in Detroit? No, it was in Tampa. Oh, in Tampa. I, uh, you're giving it away. Hit the first home run, Tropicana Stadium. Um, how many tickets did you leave that night? It was like 40 or 50, and I had to beg guys to get tickets because it was opening day, and it was their first game ever at that stadium. So it was, it was like pulling teeth to try to get tickets for there, and then I kept telling them, well, they – the general manager and those guys, I signed here because of the game being here, and they knew that I was going to have, you know, a large quantity of tickets that I had to ask for. So, uh, 
Yeah, but it was it was awesome to do that in front of my my family and friends and things like that. And I beat Wade Boggs by a half an inning. He hit one a half an inning later, the bottom half of the inning. And he was, you know, as I was running around the bases, he was yelling at me because I was a Tampa kid and I hit the first homer there. So it was pretty cool. All right, we got more for. There's another another big home run you hit. We'll get we'll get to that later in in, uh, in this episode. First time you hit 20 home runs. You hit 23 home runs. Um, by the way, the trop. For me, I'd come home. I guess I call. It, I grew up as a kid in Jersey. High school, college. I was in Orange County. Something about Anaheim Stadium though when I came home. And like you said, other than the ticket situation where kind of ahead of time your traveling secretary knew right. you know so and so we're going to their hometown he's going to need 30 tickets tonight other than that it felt like when I came to Anaheim it didn't matter how big of a slump I was in how I was feeling at the dish it was home and I hit well how were you at the trot I love the trot too it's thing. a piece of junk stadium but I love it yeah same thing I just felt something about seeing your family and friends and things like that and just being kind of home uh, yeah, that really excites players and gets them going. And that, it was no different for me than it was for you like that when you went to Anaheim. It was it was just like that when I went to Tampa. And this is kind of a uh, time in your career uh, after that season. You know, that kind of changed your whole career. And, and, and the, the gonzo we know and, and the beloved uh, Arizona Diamondback, 1999. I believe you get traded to the Diamondbacks. Uh, you're going to work. You're going to work, and we had him on the podcast, and he told me about this time in his life. You're going to work for Buck Showalter, yep. and Jerry Colangelo, one of the beloved uh, owners in all of all of sports. Um, that first season, wow! You, you hit 336, 26 homers. You lead the league in hits with 206. Uh, you win 100 games. You end up losing to the Mets. You're an all-star for the first time. It's just kind of seems like it's all coming together for you. Yeah, it really did. I mean, Detroit really changed me because of the fact that I had to learn how to pull baseballs, playing the short porch in right field, that overhang in right field. And I was always a doubles hitter. And my teammates really were the ones that kind of got on me. Hey, man, you need to learn how to pull the baseball, pull the baseball. So I started messing around with my stance. I opened it up. And... Uh, and it, it worked for me. And then that offseason, I got traded, like you said, to Arizona. And I was super excited because I, there was a lot of guys that had moved to this organization that uh, I really respected. Jay Bell, Matt Williams, um, you know, Steve Finley was here, who I played with in Houston. Just guys like that, that I love the way they play the game. And it was, it was so refreshing to walk into that locker room. It, was, it went from a young team that lost, I forgot how many games they lost in 98 their first year to where they revamped and said we're we're gonna can that and go with veteran guys and bring in some older players and it was refreshing walking into that locker room they accepted me just like everybody else and spring training I was awful I kept grounding out to second base and I know Buck wanted to trade me because the GM said he's trying to trade you right now and I said just stay with me stay with me I'll figure it out and when the season, when the bell rang to start the season, I got out of the gates a 30-game hitting streak. And then I still got this picture in my uh, in my uh, house where his arm is around me in the dugout. And I'm thinking, man, that sucker wanted to trade me. He and hated all you. Now sudden, you're his best yeah, friend. Yeah, now I'm his best player. So, yeah, but it was it was super cool to play on that team. And I thought that team was just as good as the 0-1 team. And we lost on that Todd Pratt home run to center field where Finley – Nine times out of ten, I swear he makes that play, and he, he just ran out of room that night. 
2000, another great year for you personally, 31, 114, you hit 311. Uh, and we're kind of building up to 01, because this is something, you know, as, as, a, as a peer at that time. Uh, it's, it's the 01 season, before the 01 season, I, I'm seeing it brewing. You got Randy Johnson, who I played with in Seattle. You got a Kurt Schilling now that has a split finger fastball. Early in, in Kurt's career, he didn't have that split. Right. He didn't give me any problems. I didn't mind facing Schilling. As soon as he came up with that split, he was a different, dominant Hall of Fame type pitcher to me. And, and that'll prove its way out in 01. Might as well get to it. 01. Uh, Wow. Silver Slugger, All-Star, 325, 57, 142, 128 runs scored. And I thought I had a great year in Seattle until I went until I went over this. Not only that, uh, you win the home run derby at the All-Star team at the All-Star game in my home park, which I was just happy to get one out of the yard. I didn't want <laughs> I to get booed to start. I, I, yeah, and I was like that was the year for that Mariner team. We won 116 yeah, games. Had like, we had like 10 guys yeah, on the team. Yeah, I remember that. And I remember st- still to this day. It was a home game for you guys. Biggest standing O I've ever got yeah. was for the Derby, and I'm going against Sosa. <laughs> I think I hit four. Sosa hit four, and they said, no, we don't have a playoff. Whoever has the most at the break, Sammy had more than me, goes on, and I remember he got booed, so yeah. I didn't care. It's I ended like, up beating him in the championship. Yeah, I'm like, I don't care. I just... I didn't embarrass myself. Yeah. I'm fine. I'm good. And I, I'll watch. You, I'll watch. I'll watch uh, Gonzo go win this thing. But talk about an unbelievable year. Uh, the numbers. I mean, another All Star game. It's you're going to cap it off at the end, and I'm going to walk you. This is my favorite part. Walking through your personally your 2001 year. It, it was really cool. Uh, like I said, you get to the midway part uh, point. You're having an unbelievable year. And then this is what we all had in common, guys that were playing at that time. 9-11 hits. Where are you at? I was at home. We were, we were getting ready to play the Colorado Rockies that night. I still remember like it was yesterday. And my mother-in-law called and said, are you guys watching what's on TV? And we didn't have the TV on at the time because our kids were running around and things like that. So turned the TV on and couldn't believe what we were seeing. You know, it was just, it was a bad nightmare that, you know, the 9-11, the, the planes going into the towers, and we didn't know what was going to happen. I mean, if we were, our country was getting attacked, you know, baseball became secondary. I mean, that was the least important thing to all of us, really. We were just, everybody was on hold. Our whole, the whole, you know, United States was on pause. I was in Anaheim. Uh, we were rolling. Diamondbacks were rolling. I think at the break that year, you guys were 19 games above 500. And obviously, coming off the 99 season where you win 100 games kind of turns this city around. And all of a right. sudden, the Diamondbacks, wow, they won 100 games. Kind of put this team on the map. Now the season goes on. We all get behind the scenes. We take, a, I think it was a week or so off. Our first trip was to New York after that. I'll never forget. I don't know if you got a chance to go down and, and see Ground Zero. We did. Did you? Yeah, we were there for the World Series, so we were down in... Did you take the tour down there? No, we, we went behind the scenes. We went to the command center and yeah. all that because it was during the World Series, and we wanted to pay our respects to everybody there you know we these were the biggest games of our career uh that all of us were you know super excited to play in but we didn't want to lose perspective of what was really going on in the world and we knew it was a healing process for a lot of people in the city mayor giuliani was flying 
a lot of the the kids from the families that you know that were perished in that tragic accident and he was flying back and forth every game here one and two bringing a lot of the families over here just kind of as a healing process to have them uh you know see baseball and get it back and then for us you know playing in that series it was uh we knew a lot of the country was rooting for the yankees you know just for the healing process part of it but um us and i think the people in the boston community were the only two parts of the country that everybody was rooting for us to try to win people in arizona and people in boston because they didn't want the yankees to win but as a team when we won games one and two here and we were playing really well when we went there we had already discussed hopefully we we were we were confident that we were going to win and we said if we win this thing in in new york we were not going to celebrate on the field we were going to take it into the clubhouse just out of respect to everybody because we knew you know out of all the devastation that was going on there that that would be even a bigger blow to them because baseball was king there for them in the 90s and early 2000s you know all the world series championships that they were winning so it was only fitting they won those three games in dramatic fashion byung hun kim gave up the home runs and people were going crazy and nuts there and then for us to come back here and win it here at home it was things i i, I strongly believe that things happen for a reason and i think that's the way it went down and it happened for a reason like that it was such a crazy year because you know i'd mentioned you we won 116 games. We well, felt, we thought we were going to play. You yeah, guys. we felt like we just needed to roll right. into the yard, and we were because we won every series that year. It seemed like I, I don't want to say we took it for granted, but we were we were stunned when we left Yankee Stadium, and, and they went on to play you guys in, in well, the World we, Series that year. We were with you. I mean, we actually were already. You know, you start doing your advanced scouting, and our scouts, as, as the playoffs were going on, we were, our guys, we sent more of our scouts to see you guys play because we thought y'all were rolling. The Seattle Mariners were on a roll, and we thought for sure we were going to play you guys, that you guys were going to take over and beat the Yankees and knock them out. And then, you know, they miraculously beat you guys, and then now we had to pivot and then prepare ourselves to play the Yankees. Isn't it amazing, though, you talk about... Uh people pulling for the Yankees. They never pull for the Yankees. Yeah. You're right. It was complete script flip, except for with the exception of Boston, Seattle right. at the time, before before we got beat, and, and Arizona. Everybody's cheering for the Yankees. Right. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> the yeah. evil the evil organization is that's won a million World Series. But you're right. It was for that year. I'll tell you, when we lost to them, and we were on the bus going back to the, you know, getting ready to go back to Seattle, we thought we, we thought it was like something from above. Like, you know, maybe New York's just supposed to win yeah, this year. So and I'm you, sure you felt yeah, that. We, like, no way the Diamondbacks are going to go beat them now. But let's get into that series. You, you take the first two, you go to New York, you get beat three. And I remember Kim, and I remember buddy of yours, Tino Martinez, hit, I think, one yeah, of the homers yeah. off him. But I remember feeling bad for him. Like, oh, my goodness. Yeah, we, How are they going to pull this out now? We were worried about him, especially on the plane flight home. I mean, he didn't speak English and didn't understand a lot. And then to have... 50,000, 60,000 people in Yankee Stadium, and you know how loud it can get there, chanting his name to bring him in. Oh. And then he comes in the game and he gives up a home run. It was, uh, man, it was crazy. And then, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a very quiet flight back to Arizona. But, 
you know, we had veteran guys. We were confident. Uh, we had Schilling going in game six. It was Schilling against Pettit. And we felt pretty good with our home crowd. The, you know, the crowd here was amazing. I mean, every place, like I, I had a routine and I think people, you know, they know the players by that time and they kind of knew your routine. I would always stop from my house at the Starbucks, grab a coffee and then head to the ballpark. And, and that morning, I remember for game six, I was super early. I got to the ballpark maybe at like 10 or 11 in the morning. We weren't playing until seven or eight at night. And I was just, I couldn't sleep. Just the anxiety of just preparing yourself for the game, wanting to get out there after we lost three in a row. And I thought I was going to be one of the first guys. I walk in the clubhouse, there's already four or five other guys already there, ready for it, preparing. So, um, And then for us to win game six, it was super loud. And then, and then it just came down to game seven, which was unbelievable. Uh, just walking out there and, you know, just hoping and praying that, we could stay close with those guys, and if we got a chance, I remember the ball Soriano hit late in the in the inning, and I think it was like the seventh or eighth inning. I can't remember where. It, as soon as it was hit, I ran back to the wall, and I knew it was going to go out, but I just ran to the wall, and it was like the crowd was cheering, and then all of a sudden it got extremely quiet except for the Yankee fans that were there. But uh, when we went back in, in the ninth inning, Gracie and everybody started, you know, saying, you got to believe we can do this, we can do this, and then... I struck out in the eighth inning myself and two other guys. So, and you know, as a player, you always prepare yourself. So I'm sitting in the dugout, and I'm, you don't want to get caught off guard. So I'm looking at the lineup, and I'm already, in my mind, I'm playing the scenario out where you're going to be up because this is a dream spot. You know, we all dream about being in the World Series, Game 7, bottom of the ninth, whether you're playing it as a pitcher or as a, as a hitter. So I start counting down, okay, if this guy gets on, these two guys walk, and this guy happens, or this, I may hit with bases loaded here with two outs, or if this happens, I might be with one out, I got a chance to tie the game. So I'm playing all these scenarios out. I know you've done it too, we've all done it, where you you know, you know, made an out the inning before, and you go, okay, maybe I got another chance or one more at bat. And then as the inning started progressing, I'll keep looking at the board and I go, oh my God, I got a shot at doing this. And then when it came into the inning where Council walks up to the plate, I'm on deck. In my mind, I'm playing out the scenario where where do I want to go when he gets his hit because he was the league championship MVP. And he was having a great series. It was second and third. And I'm thinking, okay, Joe Torrey doesn't want to walk him to face me because of the year that I had. They'd rather face Council. And Mariano throws the cutter, hits him on the hand, and then all of a sudden I went oh my God, this is my dream situation. Now I'm 30 years old and I'm walking to the plate and I'm, I have so many things going through my mind, Booney. What are my parents? What's my mom doing right now? What's my grandmother? Everybody, all the coaches and all the people, everybody who's helped me get to this moment, this moment that I've dreamed about my whole life. Now I'm walking up to the plate and then I'm thinking to myself, don't screw this up. You got one chance. You got... 50,000 people standing on their feet. You got millions of people watching all over the world. And you play the scenario out in your head as a kid, but then when you're actually in the moment, you don't know how you're going to react. And for me, the calming part was when I got in the batter's box. I'd already told myself, because Mariano throws the cutter, I'm a left-handed hitter, stay aggressive. Because the time before, I always took pitches to gauge speed. 
And I said, I want to be aggressive here. I don't want to fall behind. And the first pitch, I fouled it straight back. And I kind of fell over the plate. And I was like, okay, relax. You're down 0-1 now. Now it's even tougher. But they brought the infield in. So I'm saying, you don't have to do too much. A home run would have been nice in the dream. But just get something out in the outfield far enough where you can get it. And then when the ball left my bat, I knew it was falling in. And I was thinking to myself, I can't believe this is happening to me. Because we're all fans. We're all sports fans. And you always when you're sitting there on your couch you always think about man what is that what does that feel like what what does that moment feel like for a person and for me to actually find myself in that moment I couldn't believe it and then I was thinking to myself and I said in the press conference after I said I'm so glad I got that hit because I grew up in a Hispanic community and if I didn't get that hit they probably all would have disowned me My mom and them said, I don't know who that guy is. But to get that hit and be able to go back to your hometown and to go around your friends and everybody, it changed. It just changed the way people thought about you or the way you you were perceived. I mean, I people always ask me, what, what would it be like if you didn't get the hit? Well, I never really thought about it like that because it didn't happen. You know what I mean? You'd say, well, I still hit 57. Yeah, I know, but... I mean, but this no, was I know, a, I know. What it you're was saying. the first major championship to have here, and it was, it was so incredible to, to walk around like, even now to this day, it's twenty something years later, and I, I know, I know the young kids don't remember this, but like when you have parents or people still coming up to you, go, man, I remember where I was at, and those are impactful moments in people's lives, and to me to be a small part of that because it was a great team, we had great people on our team, but for people to say, I remember where I was at at that particular moment, just like we all remember where we were in 9-11. And for people to say that, especially in this city, it means so much to me to be a part of that team. And I always tell people, no, it was all of us. It was all of you guys, because you guys are the ones that helped pull us through in game six and game seven. I mean, that was our job to go out there and play, but to have the fans and the community and everybody rally around you, it was super cool. That was a huge moment. And and I remember watching it. All right, Gonzo, all you need is a sack fly. But then I'm thinking... It's Mariano. Yeah. Different for a lefty. Different for stay inside this cutter. And you know, and, and that's exactly what he did. And you know, guys, and you played, you faced him a ton, especially. He didn't know, bother being, me from the right side. Yeah, but guys would not take their game bats to face right, him, especially lefty. Lefties would not take your good game bat because you knew he was going to jam you or break your bat and stuff like that. And I took my gamer out there, and uh, I wasn't care if it's. It, I didn't care if it broken sacrifice and it did he, he broke my bat and that's great it was awesome <laughs> that's that's one of the coolest moments in sports and it capped off what an unbelievable year for you everything and and you didn't just get it off any pitcher you got it off mariano the greatest of all time uh, from a closer standpoint i want to bring you back to a point because certain things kind of resonate with me that year uh things i remember seeing piazza hitting the home run First day back from, from 9-11 yeah. when we started playing again. That gives me goosebumps. That was awesome. Another one was uh, the president, Bush, throwing out the first pitch. Tino, your buddy Martinez, told me a great story because he was in the home dugout. Right. But I still see Bush throw, and he throws a bullet, and it's a strike. And at that time, for this country, what we were going through, because I don't know how many first pitches you've thrown out recently, but that's not the easiest yeah, thing no. to do when you're I know. I do when the you're arc. out of the game I do the for a while. Coming in, yeah. But... Yeah. To see him do that at that time, that still gives me gives me goosebumps. How was it? Yeah, live? it was incredible. And and for us, the umpires came out through our side, so they came out and we saw. Wait, there's 
there's seven umpires. There's only six supposed to be on the field. And then we're like, I don't recognize that guy. Which umpire is that? Did somebody? And it was a Secret Service guy who was dressed as an umpire to protect him just in case if something happened on the field. And, of course, a lot of people don't know this, but there were snipers in all the light stands. To get in that ballpark for games uh, two, three, and four was unbelievable. It took us, and we were the players in the game. We still had to go through all the security checkpoints, things like that. You think because you're playing in the game that it's easy. You guys just walk right in and go. I mean, they had the bomb-sniffing dogs going through all our bags in the locker room. And, you know, two, every hour it seemed like they were coming through the locker room just kind of checking everything. And it, and it was, uh, if, if your families were there, which most of them were, everybody was there, they had to be on the bus. You know, they couldn't just ride with Joe Schmo and come to the stadium and expect to walk in. They had to, you know, there's so much security and different things that were going on. It was, it was crazy. But it was great to be a part of it. What I remember about that series is probably, I, I, I don't know, if not the, one of the most impressive things I've seen was that one-two punch of Randy Johnson Kurt Schilling. It was unbelievable. Uh, Schilling's coming out of the pen. Randy's coming out of the pen. Yeah. And they're just going back and forth. I think in, this, in the uh, St. Louis series, I think Randy won twice in that series. And it's, it was a best of five. Listen, those two guys, it was awesome to play with them because they competed against each other. It was quiet, a quiet competition. If one guy went out and pitched and struck out 12 and gave up two hits... The other guy was trying to strike out 15 and give up one hit. So it was a silent competition that they had against each other, and the team was the one that was the beneficiary of all that. And, and those guys were competitors, man. When they went out there and they competed, look, Randy Johnson, and you know because you played with him, in spring training, he didn't want guys to take days off. He wanted to know why the starting lineup wasn't out there when he was pitching. And you're like, this is spring training. Guys are going to go to, you know, like I would go to another in the minors. I'd go back to backfield and hit left-handers all, right. you know, taking that bat every leading off every inning just to get work off of lefties. And he's like, why aren't you playing? I go, well, I'm going to the backfield to get work in. He's like, well, I'm going to be out there. I want my starters out there. And you're like, and that's how he was. And you know yeah. that. He was a very intense guy. And, but you love playing with a guy like that because when he goes out there, he expects to win every time. I uh, I played with Randy. Like I said, I played one year in in, uh, in Atlanta, and I got the Maddox Smoltz. I, I played behind them defensively. Played with Randy early in my career in Seattle when when he was starting to get into his prime. If he was on at all, he was the most dominant pitcher I've ever played behind. And to the point where, and, and I didn't do much off of him in my career. I remember we were playing you in Tucson, and I took him deep. And I'm rounding the base. He's following me around the base. He goes, hey, boom, it doesn't count. It's only spring training. I said, it counts for me. It made me <laughs> feel right. good at least. That's right. What, a, what an unbelievable one-two. They were, they were awesome. It all started, what about Mr. On's restaurant? Oh, starting, yeah. at, starting in spring training. Yeah, it did. I mean, uh, somebody told me about his restaurant. I went over there, and... Uh, met Mr. On, and then all of a sudden, I was eating there quite a bit because my family was here, and I would come home like if, you know, if if I didn't play in the game, I would just drive home, eat dinner with my kids because you know the triplets were little at the time, so I was trying to see them as much, and it was harder for Christine to drive them to Tucson and stay at the hotel and everything like that. The kids had all their 
toys and play stuff here so it was easier so i would drive here and try to get on the road that night because i didn't want to drive in the morning because as a lot of people here that live in tucson or know back then if the highway or if there was an accident on there you're stuck and that was my worst fear is driving back in the morning and if there's an accident on that 10 and i have to call in and say hey i'm an hour late or whatever then the reporters and everybody's gonna say well why does he keep going home you know to do that so i would always come home eat dinner with them and then just try to go back and then i would go see mr on whenever i was there and play and then him and i became really close um after a while it became kind of a he would call me his number one son and we had commercials and all kinds of things going on out there but our team was playing well and he was part of our team he was almost like the cartoon character of our team he was coming out to spring training games and things like that so um it was it was a blessing to have him there and then of course we had the white Sox there and and the rockies at the time so there was a lot going on and everybody always wanted to go to his restaurant to eat the teppanyaki style you know you know everything like that that was going on there and it was the place for fans and people to go if they wanted to see major league baseball players because they were all hanging out there parade parade was incredible here it was and um you know it's the meaning of 9-11 and inside our world series rings we have uh, never forget 9-11 because it was something that was important to us and for us um, the parade route was uh, we, we rode on fire trucks and that was important to us because you know a lot of those firefighters lost their lives in the buildings and things like that so first responders I've always had a fond respect for them and I still do I have a uh, hometown hero staying here in Arizona that I try to do for first responders because I always feel like uh, when we're running away from harm those guys are putting their lives on the lines of trying to help other people and sometimes they don't make it out and they leave loved ones behind and that's one of the important things for me is to try to have that foundation that I have with hometown heroes if God forbid something happens to one of those guys we're able to help them or their families in some way that we can how much different was it uh, because that's that's the year Brenly took over from yeah. from Buck and like I told you, I had Buck on the show, and he said, "Brad, I, at that st- stage of my life, I would have done some things different." Anyway, was it a, was it a noticeable change for, at the helm? A little bit. I mean, Buck was, you know, he was more hands-on to everything that was going on, and and I love Buck. I have all the respect in the world for him, and he's doing a fantastic job now with the Mets. But when Brentley came in, he was more relaxed. He knew he had a veteran team. It was almost a turnkey type operation. He just, uh, he had his rules on a cocktail napkin when he had the team meeting and he said, play hard, be on time. That's it. And he dropped the, dropped the napkin and he said, let's go play. And then he didn't want to waste time on uh, spending two, three hours on plays. He'd say, let's go out there. Let's get it done. We get in, we get out. And, you know, when you got an older team, veteran guys, they adapt to that and, it was all about getting our work done, preparing hard, and then getting ready to go for the games and things like that. And, and him and Bob Melvin, Bob Melvin was a huge part. He was a bench coach. And, of course, now he's doing a fantastic job with, you know, he did for the Oakland A's for so many years, and he's doing the same thing with the Padres. Yeah, Bo Mel, I played for him his rookie year. 03, he came over to the Mariners, and uh, he just got a calming way about Yeah, he does. Bo Mel. Yeah, and the way, they, the way they speak to you and they get their point across, and look – as a player, you know, there's so many different flavors in that locker room. I mean, there's 
not everybody's vanilla in there. Everybody's different. So you have to treat players different. You got to use kid gloves on some guys. You got to be a little more stern with others. And, you, you know, that's how you learn your personnel. And I think uh, those guys had a great knack for figuring that out and how they uh, approach different players. 02 and 03, you're an all-star. Two more years. That, that runs off five years in a row. You drive in 100. Uh, in 04, get your 2,000th hit. And this was interesting to me. You got Tommy John surgery. Yeah. We always hear about Tommy John surgery for a pitcher. Yeah. Very rarely do we hear about a position player. How was that recovery? Was it easier as a position player coming back than it, than it would be for a pitcher? I tried to play with it for about a month and a half. It was killing me. So right after the All-Star break, I went in and said, look, I'll play as long as you guys want me to until that X is by our name saying that we've been eliminated. But, I mean, you put on the face to go out there and play. But when I was going home, I was in excruciating pain. I couldn't lift my arm up. I would take hot showers, holding on to it, just letting the hot water hit my elbow. I couldn't throw a ball from here to the bar. And, you know, it's a bad feeling when you're playing a big league game and you're standing out there and praying that nobody hits you a ball that you got to throw, try to throw somebody out or anything. Steve Finley was in center, and I, would, and I told Steve, I said, any ball hit to left center field, it's yours. Or if I field it on the ground, I'm going to flip it to you so it looks like I'm going away from the ball and... And, uh, you know, I made the decision I need to have the surgery done. But that offseason, I was, I was ramped up. I was going to early rehab because, you know what, it took me so long to get to the big leagues. And, you know, when you get there, I'm, I grew up with a family, like I said earlier, with not a lot of money. And I, I have the utmost respect for playing that game. And I never wanted a day off. I wanted to play every single day. And I was not going to let somebody take my job. So I knew when I'm missing time, there's another guy that's going to be out there. So I did everything I could rehab, and I rehabbed twice a day. I would go to one therapy in the morning. I'd go home and eat lunch, and then I'd go to another one late at night. My wife thought I was crazy, but I was like, I got to do it. I got to do it. And spring training, I was ready to go, and they were holding me back saying, you need more time, you need more time. I said, I got to get out on the field, and I got to see I got, you know, you got to break that mental block of throwing the ball. And once you can do that, then you know, okay, I'm good. And finally, they let me go with about a week or two to go in the spring training. And then I was good to go after that. Isn't it amazing, though? That's how we thought. Because it's like, if I'm not playing, I can't do anything. I need to drive in 100 runs. And if I'm not, if I miss four games, that might be eight ribbies, might be zero, but it might be eight. Well, that's how. BB and Brenly used to motivate me. I, for two, two and a half years, I played every single game. Like he would say, I'm thinking about giving you a day off. And I said, I, in, in my mind, I, I took the approach that people were paying to come see me play. And I knew I had great teammates, but I had to have that kind of that mentality like they're coming to see me play. Even if they weren't, in my mind, I felt like they were. And I wasn't going to get hits every single day. But I wanted to go out there and grind it out. And then, you know how I got hurt? I played two and a half years. The, the game that I got hurt, I pulled a ribcage muscle. We went to the minor leagues to play a exhibition, exhibition game. game. And they said, you're going to get one at bat and you're out of the game. You know, just go out there and wave and show, you know, hit BP so the fans could see you hit home runs and stuff like that. And I went in and I took a swing because I didn't properly warm up. Because I said, I'm just going to get one at bat and sell out crowd. I took a swing, and I felt a twinge in my side. And as I'm running down the first baseline, it got worse and worse, and that's what happened. I pulled a ribcage muscle. 
05, you're an all-star again, and I think we have certain times in our career where obviously you played with the Astros, you played with the Cubs, you played with Detroit, but probably you consider the Diamondbacks your home. Right. But it comes to an end for all of us. Mine was Seattle. I remember leaving there. It was kind of bittersweet for me. I knew it was time. Doesn't mean I liked it, but it, but it was a reality. I didn't fight it. Did you know that after the 06 season, you end up signing a one-year deal with the Dodgers? But did you feel that? Or, or I don't know. All you've done in, in, in Arizona, winning the World Series, did you realize it's coming to an end and life goes on? I never wanted to leave here. Um, the problem was there was a new regime that came in, and they wanted to kind of clean house. And I still felt like I had gas left in the tank. And I was starting to come up on some milestones, doubles and things like that, where I felt like, okay, I could get to these and um, I could help some younger players on the team, even if you don't want me to play every day and things like that. The, the worst meeting ever was when they told me that they weren't going to keep me. I was devastated because I thought, okay, I had an option on my contract and I said, okay, they're not going to pay me that. Okay, we'll renegotiate the deal. They go, no we're not going to have you back. And that was the reason I signed with the Dodgers because I said, okay, you guys don't want me. I'm going to the Dodgers where you're going to have to see me another 13 times and our fans are going to see me. And, you know, I knew that I built a good rapport with our fans and uh, it was hard. I mean, to come back here and to be wearing the uniform that we hated at the time when we were playing them. And, uh, you know, then I ended up playing one more year after that. I went to Florida. I was 40 years old. I was playing with guys half my age. Three of the coaches were my teammates at one time or another. And uh, I, but I still, I think I ended up hitting 20 something doubles there at the end. And, and then at 40, I tried to come back here to Arizona and they said I wasn't a fit. And I said, I'll go to the, I was willing to go to the minors. Wow. Yeah. I said, I'll go to the minors. After for, all that. Yeah. Because I wanted to play, man. I was, it's in my blood. I just didn't want to give up. And I said, I'll go to Tucson and play there. And if after a month and a half, if I'm not good, I'll walk away from the game. But I wanted to wear the D-backs uniform one last time. I was four doubles away from 600. And I said, I, can, I, know, I, can, I know I can hit four doubles somehow. I can run into four balls and get four doubles. I want to do it wearing this uniform. I don't need to play every day. I just want to help the other kids on the team. And they said, you're not a fit. And then... Our president, Derek Hall, called me and said, we'd like you to to work for us. And then I took it. I said, yep. And that's very fitting. Also in that, uh, you signed with the Dodgers in 07. I didn't even know this. Okay. I, I still don't. I can't believe it's there. I don't remember it. We talked about Tropicana Field. We talked about being probably, if well, Oakland. Trop's probably the worst ballpark. I loved hitting there. I do not remember a tank. You hit the, not only did you hit the first home run at the drop, you hit the first home run into the Ray tank. In right center field. And you yeah. wouldn't give the ball away. And that was kind of a big deal. Yeah, I was, uh, I didn't even know that tank was out there. And uh, yeah, they, they came up to me after the game and they were doing the interviews and saying, you know, you hit the first ball in the Ray's tank. And I was like, what are you talking? I didn't know. And I think. Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty cool to be have two firsts in that stadium. And, uh, 
Yeah, to this day, even like the first home run that I hit at that ballpark, somebody tried to give it to me a few years later, and I was like, that ball doesn't have any meaning to me because I don't know if it's the original ball. But the the uh, the ball that went in the tank, it, you could tell it was sitting in water. <laughs> it was soaked in water for a while. Oh, wait, uh, your final year, you finish up with the Marlins. Uh, what a career, 283, 354 homers, 14, 39 ribbies, and you mentioned the five, uh, I think it was 596. That's a lot of doubles, man. Twenty Over almost 2,600 hits. Uh, awesome career. 2010. Now, this is cool for me because I've, I've, I've had guys on the podcast, Hall of Famers, guys that I, I always say statues the ultimate. Getting into the team Hall of Fame, really good. Hall of Fame, you get a statue that's a – but getting your number retired. Nobody can wear your number again right. as a Diamondback. To me, that's that's a pretty special honor. Obviously, all the things you've done in Arizona, it warranted that. You probably had an inkling something was going to come along. But when you actually get that call and say, we're going to do it 2010, how cool was that? Oh, it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. You know, this city, the organization, my whole my life really turned around when I came here as a free agent or actually came here in the trade. Um, and I was just, I was overwhelmed when they called and said, hey, we want you to, we're gonna retire your number. You're gonna be the first number to be retired. And I, you know, you think of Randy and you know all the good players that we played with here and to for them to pick me to be the guy. And I was blessed, man. I was able to play with a lot of great players I tried to play the game the right way every time out there. I tried to lead by example, try to be a good role model, not just on the field to my teammates, but off the field to other people. And and I think, you know, and I always say in life, you know, when it's when it's all said and done for me, you know, the ultimate goal is to win championships and things like that. But to make impact in people's lives for me is, I mean, there's no bigger thrill than than doing that. Even now to this day, you know, now that I'm retired to go places and people still uh, get excited to see you or want to be around you and talk to you and stuff like that. I love it because I'm a people person. I love being around the fans and they're they are what makes you. I mean, you don't get to that point without. Of course, you got to go out there and be a good player and and play the game hard but the fans are really the ones that surround themselves around you and like you as a player and want to wear your jersey and want to you know be around you and stuff like that that's what means the most to me i think something really cool is that legends race everybody <laughs> we're used to you know yeah. it kind of started in milwaukee they have the sausage race i can watch that all day yeah. and all night yeah i think in washington they have the president's race where the heads of the president right. and uh here in here in uh, Arizona, Chase Field, they've got the Legends race, and, and who is it? It's you. Is it Randy Gracie and Matt Williams? Yep, yep. And it's every night. Every night. I've been does a little it, disappointed in my it, guy. I need to look, take him into training once in a while. I think that'd be the coolest thing in the world. I mean, getting a number retired is cool, but seeing those, seeing myself run every night. Does he look like you? Does the figure uh, do you any justice, or what, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's, it's he had the goatee, and of course, I don't wear that anymore, but. About a month and a half, two months ago, my guy took a spill out there on the field, man. I, and I knew he was hurt because there's like a long pole that goes up his back that the head is a lot taller. You know, it's like a, you know eight or nine foot thing. And he fell down 
and I, you know, I'm sitting up in the box, and I'm like, I was disappointed in him. He got out of the gate slow, and then you could tell he was stumbling somehow, and he tripped like on the on-deck circle, right by the on-deck circle, and he went down, and I said, man, I know he's hurt, because when he got up, he was limping, and I think that was the first time they had to put my mascot on the DL for a while I, on the injured I, list, so I was pretty disappointed out there. I don't know but why. But I did, I did go down and check on him, because I wanted... You know, I, I didn't want to miss games, so I wanted to make sure he was good to go again. I don't know why I think that's so cool, but I think there's <laughs> nothing better than if I had the opportunity to go to game, watch myself run in the sausage race. Anybody give me any lip at all, go, when you get one in the race, you can talk about it. <laughs> For me, that's, I don't know. I think it's cool. maybe cooler than most people yeah. think. But having a figure of myself and, and be able to tell my kids, hey, kid. When you get one in the Legends race, we'll talk. Yeah. I thought that, I thought that was pretty awesome. Um, from our generation, let's keep it there. Hitter you'd pay to see. Man, I tell you, I, I'm a left-handed guy. So, I mean, there was my favorites that I really enjoyed. You know, Tony Gwynn was unbelievable. Wade Boggs was another guy. Dave Magadan was a guy that I idolized as a, you know, he played little league. Mag's from Tampa too. Yeah. I left him out. He hit like five seventy yeah. in college. And he was he was in senior league, like fifteen year old baseball when I was like eleven, twelve, and my parents would say, We need to go watch it was him and Fred McGriff playing fifteen year old baseball and they were left handed hitters, so my parents said, You need to go watch these guys hit. And and I would sit in the stands and just marvel at these guys. They were 15 years old, and they were like my heroes because I was a little kid and didn't really know much about pro baseball and stuff like that, except, you know, I followed the Reds, the big red machine, spring training, but I didn't go to a lot of those games. So my games were watching the older kids play, and, you know, Mags went to Alabama and set records there and went to the College World Series and got like 15 hits and 10 at-bats or whatever, and he had some ridiculous... Thing like that and for me that was like the biggest thrill when I got traded to the Cubs that he was on that team and I said Mags you know you know we grew up in the same area he's related to Lou Pinella and I said you know you were my my childhood hero and now I get to play with you it's pretty cool to be out here and see stuff like that so and it was good I mean we had a good relationship we went to dinners together and stuff like that so it was cool like to see an older guy all of a sudden now you're chasing his you know chasing him and and that, you know, that was pretty special. But there were some great, to me, left-handed hitters all the, you know, that were still in the game that I got to play against and go out there and, you know, try to, you know, Tony Gwynn, I always said he had the magic wand. Like, we would get in a hitter's meeting or a defensive meeting and say, Finley and I were really competitive about, okay, let's try to see if he can not get hits against us today. And then, of course, he'd dink one in or we'd play him one way and he'd hit it to the other side. I'm like, this guy is unbelievable how he's finding a way to get hits every day. And that's what made him one of the greatest hitters of all time. By the way, it seems like everybody's related to Lou. Yeah. Everybody. Pinella. Um, okay. Hitter you'd pay to see in 2022. Oh, man. I, well, right now, Judge is... Judge is doing fantastic. I love watching him. He's got power. Every time he comes to the ballpark, you know, to the plate, he's in scoring position. You think he's going to hit something out of the ballpark. Uh, Harper was having a great year. Mike Trout's probably the guy that I really love watching him play when he's when he's healthy and he's on. 
Um, he's, a, he's a super exciting player. He seems like he's always having fun. He's intense on the field, but I mean, he just he puts that smile, and I love seeing kids get excited in the stands and stuff like that, and everybody loves uh, watching him play, and I'm one of those guys, too. How do you want to be remembered by your peers? Probably as a guy who competed hard on the field and got along with everybody, kind of Yeah, just a guy that played the game the right way, uh, wanted to win every time out there, but respected the guys on the other side of the field. And to me, that's, that's the ultimate. When guys respect you as a player, but respect you even more as a human being and say, you know, he played the game the right way, didn't play dirty, knew how to go out there and compete and wanted to win every time and was a good teammate. Um, that's the most important thing to me is when your teammates respect you and you know, when you always ask about a player, the first thing they always say, they never say, uh, you know, like you say, hey, what about Brett Boone? They don't say, oh, Brett Boone, he was a hell of a baseball player. They always go, oh, he's a good guy or a great guy. And then they tell you about the type of player he was. And that's the way I always want to be remembered about what type of person you were. And then you could talk about my career after that. But more of, hey, he was a good dude. I really, you know, I love playing with that guy. He, he was super cool and got along with everybody on the team and you know there's fights all the time in the locker rooms sometimes you know within yourselves and with the teammates and things like that and you try to police it in there as much as you can but you know stuff happens so as long as you get along with all your teammates that's all that matters Luis Gonzalez it's been a pleasure this this is awesome what an unbelievable career I want to this is our first live podcast I think it went off all right I want to thank the people Uh, stuck around everybody stuck around it's unbelievable no this this was cool different but uh I think we did pretty good I think we did thank you guys handlebars thanks for having us here Gem Ray Media and uh As we do each and every time on the Boone Podcast, at the end of the Boone Podcast, we kick it back to the voice of the podcast, Dan Levy. Dan? That's going to do it for the Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy, the technical director, producer, voice of the Boone Podcast, EP, executive producer, Rich Herrera Digital. All gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Do us a favor, share the Boone Podcast, neighbors and friends and all those that love sports. Make sure you subscribe. Never miss an episode. And while you're at it, give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, he is Brett Boone. You can find him on social media at the Boone 29. I'm Dan Levy, BASS on air. That is base on air, all of my social medias. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Have a great one.